0: Turn to Acts chapter 18 this morning. You'll never see a again the same way, will ya? you? know. Acts chapter 18 this morning. Whoops, let me get back where I need to be here. So I've always been more of an optimist than a pessimist, um, which means I'm generally not prone to too much discouragement, though it doesn't mean that I don't get discouraged or that I don't go through periods of... Discouragement, but would that be right, Amy, that I'm probably more of an optimist than a pessimist? She's got that look on her face. So, um, when we think of, yeah, she said yes, by the way. Good girl, good girl. When we think about the Apostle Paul, what do you think of? You generally think of him as being somebody who would get discouraged easily, or somebody who would maybe need some encouragement. You know, he faced an awful lot. We've read about this, we'll see it again today, but. Boy, he sure went through some abuse, didn't he? And it's interesting to think, so much of what we find in the scriptures with him is this bold, courageous young man. I don't know how young he was, but that's the impression you get, kind of just moving forward from city to city. And In fact, we remember the time where he was taken outside the city and um, beaten, stoned, left for dead, and he gets up and decides to go back in, right? That's kind of the picture we have of him. But... And I can't say this with a tremendous amount of certainty or degree today, but when we look at the text today, he arrives at Corinth. And there are some hints in the text that suggest that he may have been a little discouraged. He may have had a little bit of fear, which personally I think we could probably understand, because even the strongest, most courageous individuals, some of the, you know, you think about Navy SEALs and all that, I don't think you'd find any of them that would say that as courageous as they are running into battle... That they would say, Oh, I'm never afraid, never discouraged. They may not show it. And that's, I think, what we see with the Apostle Paul. And so there's some things in this text today um, that kind of hint at the fact that there may have been some discouragement, some fear, if you will. And so as I've gone through this um, study, there are a number of other things that I thought about that I believe would have encouraged the Apostle Paul. And so that's the approach I'm going to take with the text today that there are at least five things in this text that I believe encouraged the Apostle Paul and enabled him to do what he did. And so we're going to focus on that. The first thing that I want to see is that the Lord encouraged the Apostle Paul with ministry partners and friends. And that's going to be critical. If you look at verse, eight, or verse 1 of chapter 18, it says, After these things he left Athens and he went to Corinth. Let's look at that a little bit. Corinth was a fairly new city. It was less than a hundred years old. It was built by the Romans. It was the, you know, it was pretty, pretty large, about 200,000 people. It was larger than Athens. So by um, ancient Near Eastern standards, it was a very large city. It wasn't the largest, but it was big. It sat on this small little area. It was a very narrow piece of land. It was 20 miles long by 5 miles wide. And it sat between two very large bodies of water. And there were ports there. And so it became critical to Rome at that time because almost all of your trade routes kind of went through there. In fact, in order to have to not go around a large peninsula, they would come into the port and then just carry their boats across or their supplies across that little five-mile stretch. So there were sailors coming in and out all the time. It was a major trade route, not just east and west, but even north and south. It separated the Greek mainland from the rest of the, the, um, the peninsula there. It was really a pretty strategic city, Filled with military, all the people in the Roman Empire would travel through Corinth at some point generally. Much like Athens, Corinth was also a very religious city. It was filled with Egyptian, Roman, and Greek cults. There were temples and shrines dedicated to gods all over the place. You know some of them, Apollos. Poseidon, who is Poseidon? Any of your kids now? God of the sea, there was also a very large temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, which stood on a place called the Acro Corinth, which was a 1900 foot tall plateau, and the temple sat right up there. The other thing that Corinth was known for, and some of you may know this already, was for its licentiousness and its immorality. I'm going to quote to you from a commentary by William Barclay. I'll just read this to you. It gives you an idea of what Corinth was. Looked like at this time. She, meaning Corinth, had a reputation for commercial prosperity. In other words, a very rich city. But she was also a byword for evil living. The very phrase, to live as a Corinthian, had become part of the Greek language and meant to live with drunkenness and immoral debauchery. One late Greek writer tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown on stage in a Greek play, he was shown as a drunk The very name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery and there was one source of evil in the city which was known above everything else in the civilized world. Above the Isthmus towered the hill of the Acropolis and on it stood the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. To that temple there were attached 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes and in the evening they would descend down from the Acropolis down into the city and they would ply their trade among the streets of Corinth. You can imagine why it was a popular place for sailors. Until there flourished far more recondite vices, which had come in with the traders and the sailors from all over the earth, until Corinth became not only a synonym for wealth and luxury, drunkenness and debauchery, but also for filth. That was the city. And Paul arrives here all by himself. We see that in verse 1. He shows up here. He had actually left Timothy and Silas back behind at Athens before he came here. And so he comes into the city, and I immediately wonder what Paul must have thought. When I moved to Columbus, I was kind of a small-town boy. I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin at the time. Maybe the population was 80,000 people. Not a big city by any stretch of the imagination. From there I moved to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which was a city of about 50,000, and lived on campus there. Then I moved from there to a small town of 30,000 in Wausau, Wisconsin. And then from there I moved to Warsaw, Winona Lake, Indiana, which about 5,000 people. Rush Hour was literally a two minute drive across town. And when I got ready to move to Columbus, Ohio, I was a little bit freaked out. Because again, the largest city I've ever lived in was 80,000 people. And I'm moving to a region that had well over a million people packed into it. And I was very apprehensive not just because it was big, but because I knew it wasn't necessarily going to be like, especially the last small town, where half the population walked around in Warsaw wearing these beanies or these coverings on their head because a lot of them were Mennonite and they were very religious people in town and a very conservative town. And here I was coming to the big city. I was imagining Columbus to be much more like New York and Chicago. I found out it wasn't. But that was my concern. And I knew... Nobody here except for Pastor Tony Webb, that he was my Greek professor in seminary. He was a pastor of the Grace Brethren Church. But I had no friends here, didn't know anybody here. It was very apprehensive. Imagine what Paul must have felt coming into Corinthians all by himself, but he's in a city that is in many respects the Las Vegas, the sin city. And so Paul arrives there, but immediately God introduces him to two new people, Priscilla and her husband Achilla. Notice verses 2 and 3, it says, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 2 and 3, and he found a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for... The trade, they were tent makers. So they had recently come from Corinth because the emperor, Claudius, had kicked them all out of Rome, the Jews. Luke tells us that Paul stayed with them. In fact, he worked with them because he had something in common. All three of them were tent makers. They probably had a shop in the marketplace, and so Paul was able to work with them right in the shop. But the impression here is that Paul also lived with them. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not Priscilla and Achilla were actually saved at this point. There's not enough in the text or even the rest of the Bible to really tell us whether or not they were. There are some who believe they probably were, that having been kicked out of Rome. The reason that Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome was primarily because of debates and arguments over somebody he called Crestus. Sound familiar? And so it's possible that Priscilla and Achilla knew of Jesus or came to Christ in Rome... Not really sure. Others argue that they probably came to Christ under Paul's tutelage and evangelism, and that's also possible as well. We don't really know, but what we do know is that Paul felt comfortable around them. He worked with them on a daily basis, he lived with them, he at least had in common with them a shared Judaism, a shared faith in Yahweh, if you will. But what we do know about them is ultimately they do get saved. If they're not saved at this point, they clearly do because they become ministry partners of Paul. And we see their influence with the Palos in the next chapter. We see them in the rest of the scriptures. So whether they were saved or not is not the important thing. The important thing here is that they were a tremendous encouragement to the Apostle Paul. Provided them a place to work, a place to live. People have, um of a shared faith to at least some degree being Jews. Think about what this must have been like for Paul. He'd just come from Athens where he had only a few converts, all of whom were Gentiles. And he actually spent the days reasoning and debating and arguing with the Gentiles and the Jews in the synagogue, and yet there were only a few. He even spent time at the Areopagus preaching in front of probably thousands of people. I wouldn't say that it was a huge, successful ministry that Paul had just left and moved on to Corinth. It was a lot of hard work in Athens. Remember, his heart was stirred and he was troubled. I doubt that emotion had left him. And I'm certain, as he probably left Athens and moved on to Corinth, there might have been a little bit of discouragement in his mind, thinking didn't have as many converts there as maybe he had hoped. He had left this city behind knowing what they were facing, if you will. That's speculation on my part, but I could imagine that's the case. Would you not feel the same way if you spent time sharing and witnessing with people knowing that they had rejected you and rejected the gospel and you're now leaving and you're wondering what may face them? Knowing that your heart's desire was for them to know Christ. And so Paul here, and then he ends up in this city. He's by himself. He left Silas and Timothy behind. He's in, again, the sin city of Greece. So he's all alone. And lo and behold, the first people he meets are Priscilla and Achilla. Fellow Jews provide him with a place to stay, a way to make a living, a place to work, which also then gave him opportunity to teach within that environment because he's talking to people in the marketplace. God naturally brings people into his presence to buy his tents or to walk through the marketplace. It's interesting because they actually became pretty significant companions and friends to the Apostle Paul. They became his traveling companions. If you look at verses 18 and 19, we're going to see that they actually um, went to Corinth. We'll just jump down to that real briefly here. And also some of the epic... Oops, I'm back in 18 here. 18 verses 18 and 19, we see that Paul, having remained many days there, took leave of the brethren, and he set out for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Achilla. In other words, they traveled with him. They became his traveling companions in ministry. They also served the church in Ephesus. We see, remember, when they um, witnessed, and we'll see this uh, what next week, where they work with Apollos to better teach him the understanding of the ways of the Lord. And so we see that they're ministry partners with Paul. They're working in his, steed. We find, or in his stead. We find that um, Paul does that often. He works with people, trains them, and then has them also serve on his behalf. He did that with Timothy and, and Silas. He left him here at Athens. We see that elsewhere where he sends Timothy over to um, Ephesus near the end of his life to minister. And so Priscilla and Aquila, we find out minister on behalf of Paul, not just here but in other places as well. We find out that in First Corinthians 16, verse 19, that they had a house church of their own. We find two places where we're told that they have a house church. One was in Ephesus, it appears, and one was possibly in Rome when they went back to Rome for a brief period of time. So they are opening up their home and hosting churches in their homes. Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, refers to them specifically as my co-workers in Christ. We also find that Paul says that during the riot that takes place in Ephesus before he's kicked out, it says that they even risked their lives for Paul. They put their own lives on the line. We don't have any more details other than the fact that there was a big riot in in Rome, or I mean in Ephesus, and that Paul says they put their lives on the line for me. If you remember, Paul was prohibited. Actually, I don't get lost track of where we're at sometimes, what we've talked about, what we've not, because I'm six weeks ahead of you folks. But when they have the riot in Ephesus, um, Paul wants to go back in to address the crowds and the brethren won't let him do that. It might have been Priscilla and Achilla that were there arguing, don't Paul? But regardless, they risked their lives for him. We know that they went back to Rome at some point and again hosted a church in their house. The last thing we learn about them, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, is Paul, when he writes to Timothy, who he left in Ephesus, Priscilla and Achilla are back in Ephesus. So they had gone to Ephesus with Paul after this. They spent time there ministering on Paul's behalf. At some point, they went back to Rome, their home, for a very short period of time. And then they went back to Ephesus to continue ministering. And Paul references that when he's writing to Timothy. And so my point of bringing all this up is that here are these two individuals. Paul goes to this city, again, a very challenging city, by himself, and immediately God provides him with these two new friends and co-workers that we find hang with Paul the rest of his life, become his co-workers. What a tremendous encouragement that must have been. I oftentimes think about my own ministry and my own life and the way that God has surrounded me with people. You know, I when I left um, Eau Claire after I graduated, I moved to Wausau, Wisconsin. I had a friend there. But didn't really know anybody else. But that's where I met Pastor Krenz. That's where I met the Nuttings, who to this day, you know, we when we went home for this summer, they joined us to go up to Door County for a while. You know, they made me a part of their family. Um, I can still think of the impact that they had on me in my ministry before I went to seminary. Then when I went to seminary... Almost immediately, I was introduced to a couple of other single guys. Most of the folks that I went to seminary with were all married. But there were a handful of other young guys, much like myself. And I think about the impact. I was talking to one of them the other night. We talked on the phone for three hours. And um, I, I was just reminded how, as I look at each one of these individuals... Um, I still am encouraged by their ministries. One of them is a pastor up in northern Ohio, and I see his stuff online. Every once in a while, I'll watch one of his sermons. I see Jeff out in Nebraska, the one I talked with the other night. And what a tremendous encouragement that was. And I remember how I survived seminary in many respects because of God introducing me to these other guys who became friends and co-workers, if you will, in the ministry, and they're out there today doing the same thing. And all these guys are solid Guys, one of the things I shared with Jeff was I'm almost shocked and amazed because we see so many go out into ministry and compromise and fall apart and I can rattle through a long list of names of people that we all once looked up to that kind of went, what in the world happened? And yet I look at each one of these guys and they're all pastoring kind of small churches, you know, and just doing these amazing things with God. What an encouragement that is. I think about Dustin here. In spite of his joke this morning... He's been an encouragement to me. When I first when we first started talking about maybe starting something, uh, my heart wasn't in starting another church. I love teaching, you know, but the thought that Dustin was willing to join us in that was a tremendous encouragement to me because he's able to teach but he's able to study with me as well, but just the conversations we have on a regular basis. God has a way of doing that, and I'm sure it's true in your lives as well, where God has brought alongside you, not just friends, but people who are Christians that you have to consider as co-workers. They're in it just like you are. And that's what we see the Lord do here with Paul as he comes to the city. I'm I'm, I'm amazed as I, as I look at Paul in a way that every city that Paul went to, God somehow did this for him. And so, one of the first things I see here is the Lord encouraged the Apostle Paul by the friends and the co-workers that he placed alongside him, sometime right out of the blue, like he did here. Let's look on to the next one. The second thing I see here is that the Lord encouraged Paul by providing for him, or through his provision. We're going to read verses 4 through 5. And he was reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. I have to imagine as he saw Silas and Timothy show up that that in and of itself was probably a huge encouragement. You know, remember, he refers to Timothy as his son in the faith. I often think of that when I think about Pastor Krenz and how, you know, he's like a second dad to me in so many respects. Um, That's the way Timothy was to Paul. So I imagine as Paul was there, he sees Timothy, and remember, they didn't have texting or email or phone calls. They would generally have an idea, maybe, of when somebody was expected. They knew what the travel time was, and I'm sure he probably told Timothy Timothy and Silas, Come join me in a few weeks, come join me in a month, whatever it was. So he probably had a general idea, but you could imagine how it must have been a surprise all of a sudden to see Timothy and Silas show up. What a huge encouragement that must have been. But there's another reason why Paul would have been encouraged by their arrival. Part of it is that it would have freed him up from the work that he was doing. Think about this for a moment. Paul was an evangelist. His heart was in full-time ministry. He made it a point, however, of making tents so that he could provide for not just his needs, but the needs of his men. So he would work with his hands. He's proud of this. He mentioned this to both the Corinthians and the Thessalonians, that he worked with his hands so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. It was an example that he set. So for this reason, he was somewhat limited when he arrived at Athens. Remember, he's now making tents, working with Priscilla and Achilla, So his time is now divided between those conversations and having to make the tents. However, when Silas and Timothy arrived, notice what the text says. That he was able to completely devote himself to the Word. So with Timothy and Silas coming, Paul was able to now stop working full-time making tents and completely devote himself to full-time ministry now. Now one reason he was able to do this was because Silas and Timothy brought with them a financial gift from the churches of Macedonia. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 9. look at verse 8 I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you he doesn't literally mean he robbed other churches he means other churches gave and when I was present with you and I was in need notice he's writing to the Corinthians here when I was with you in need I was not a burden to anyone for when the brethren came that's Timothy and Silas from Macedonia they fully supplied my need and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so What he's referencing there is the fact that Timothy and Silas had brought to him at Corinth the financial gifts given by the churches in Macedonia. That was how Paul was able to now stop working full time. His needs had been met by other churches. Philippians uh, chapter 4 as well. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at last you have revived your concern for me. Philippi was one of the churches in Macedonia that had provided funds for Paul, not just once, but on multiple occasions. Paul is referring to that here. He says, I I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at last have received your concern for me. Indeed, you have concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak from or not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, I now or I know how to get along with humble means and also how to live in prosperity, and in every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strength or through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. What he's talking about there is that they had shared financially with him. Timothy and Silas brought those gifts to Paul at Corinth. Imagine what an encouragement that must have been because, again, Paul's heart was to do full time what he was now not able to do full time because he was having to work with his hands while he's in Athens all by himself. We know his passion wasn't making tents, his passion was preaching the gospel full time, making disciples. So what an encouragement that must have been to Paul when he saw Timothy and Silas show up with the financial gifts, knowing he could now do where his heart was. I love what I do. I love being an IT geek. I've never really aspired to be full-time ministry. I've always enjoyed working with my hands. And part of it is because, unlike Paul with the gift of evangelism, I have never been gifted in evangelism. I evangelize, I try to share the gospel, but that's not the way God gifted me. And so I knew early on in my ministry that I would gravitate around Christians, meaning that if I were in full-time ministry, I would probably spend almost all of my time around the saved. And I began to think, you know, what is one of the ways that I can put myself in the position to where I'm surrounded by the unsaved? And for me, that's partly working with my hands. I'm not saying that's the best choice or the right choice for anybody. It's simply that I enjoy working with the unsaved, and it gives me opportunity to share the gospel, but I also have a passion for preaching and teaching and serving in the role that I do here, which causes an interesting challenge sometimes, because there's times I wish I had more time to do this. One of the ways that you guys make all of this possible is By providing a housing allowance to me. What a blessing that has been in my life because I used to do consulting work on the side to also help meet the needs of our family. I work in a family with a single income, which can make things a little challenging. I also work for a company where my my compensation and pay over the years has not kept pace with inflation and other things. I still get paid very well for what I do. I'm not complaining. But I would do on-the-side work as well, consulting work which made it even more difficult to try to devote time to this. And so one of the ways that God has provided for me in this is you provide me with a housing allowance and I don't do as much contracting work on the side. What a blessing that has been to me and my family. Appreciate that. I thank you for that. Because it truly does allow me to dedicate more time to study and other things. I know that that's an encouragement to Paul because it is to me. And so the second thing that we see the Lord do here with Paul is he encourages him through his provision that he might be able to do what it was in his heart. Third thing is that the Lord encouraged Paul with good news. Now, we have to actually step outside of Acts once again to see this. It's not actually in here, but it is directly related to Timothy and Silas' coming to Paul. When they arrive, they bring Paul some good news, and it's good news that encourages Paul. If you remember, when Paul was ministering in Thessalonica, the Jews started a riot, and he was ultimately sent away by the church under the cover of night for his own safety. That actually is from Acts chapter 17. So he was run out quickly, probably before he felt like his ministry was done there, but because of his own safety, he was run out of the city, or left the city. The same thing then happened at Berea, And after Paul left Berea, there are two things on his mind. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to keep our finger there for a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to read verses... We're going to look at verse 17 we're going to start with. We're going to read a small chunk here. Paul writes this. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope and our joy and our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were here, we kept, I'm sorry, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our own labor would not be in vain, or would be in vain." Paul's two primary concerns with leaving the Thessalonians and the Bereans behind was that he knew that the Thessalonians, at least, probably the Bereans as well, would be concerned about him and the persecution that he faced. It is a burden, isn't it, when we know others are worrying about us? We want to comfort them. And remember, he just couldn't pop off a text. He couldn't just open up his iPhone and video chat with them. So one of his concerns as he was forced out was that they're going to be worried about me. I don't want them to worry about me. I'm I'm okay. The second thing was that he was worried that Satan might come in and tempt them to abandon their faith and that his ministry might have been in vain. Now why would that be? Paul knew what they were going to face because he was facing it. And Paul would rightly ask the question, will they be able to stand? Paul was a mature believer at this point. The Thessalonians and the Bereans were not. You can imagine the enemy would certainly want to take advantage of that, would he not? Let's go after the baby. You look at our culture and society, why is it? And I don't believe this is, I think this is the work of the enemy. Where does the enemy seem to attack the most? Our children. We see what's happening in our schools, in our culture, in our society. Why? They're weak, they're innocent, they're immature. The frontal lobe's not fully developed. Whatever you want to say. And so Satan will go after the young in Christ to discourage them. And Paul knew he's being run out. What were they going to face? And so he's got these two great concerns over what had happened. Well, by the time he makes it to Athens, he says here that he can't stand it anymore. Now, this is when he went to Athens... So he actually sent Timothy to go back to Thessalonica to encourage them, but also find out how they're doing. Look at verses, Keep your, like I said, keep your finger there at 1 Thessalonians 3, but look at verses 5 and 6. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and your love and that you always think kindly of us longing to see us as we long to see you so when Timothy and Silas show back up here now at Corinth they brought Paul good news about the Thessalonians and the Bereans remember Paul said I couldn't stand it so when I was at Athens I sent him now he's in Corinth he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up And part of the reason he's eager for them to arrive is because he knows they're going to have news. Will it be good news or will it be bad news? And he tells us here that when he's writing back to the Thessalonians, he brought us good news about your faith and about your love for us and how you think kindly of us. What an encouragement that must have been. We know it was, in fact, because Paul says in verses 7 and 8 there, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at this. For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we were comforted about uh, about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which we rejoice in? before our God on your account. So here Paul is, in this strange, sinful, sin-laden city, wondering how the Thessalonians are doing, because he had to lead them so quickly, wondering if Satan has taken that seed away. And what he discovers when Timothy and Silas show up, is that they're doing well. Their faith is strong. What an encouragement that must have been for Paul as he's in this city. Think of the encouragement that must have been to him as he's looking at the city thing, you know what? Yeah, Satan can attack all he wants. I see what he did to me in Thessalonica and in Berea running me out. But the believers there are still standing strong. You think it might encourage him in Corinth about well, what God can do? I think it certainly would have. You know, it's interesting because I've shared this before. i, I mentioned this to Dustin oftentimes. Um, one of the most encouraging things for me is when I come across people that have had the opportunity to minister to in the past. And I see how they're doing today. And they share stories with me about their faith or where they're at. And I remember this one individual a number of years ago um, came up to me at a homeschool picnic. And I hadn't seen him in, I'm guessing, probably a year or two. And he basically shared with me, he goes, Man, I still remember when you were teaching, and he mentioned the passage, and he said, I remember what you taught. And he went through and he described to me the things that he had learned that night. And he was referencing the text. And he was telling me how that had radically changed part of the way he had been thinking and what impact that one night had made and this was quite a few years later and he still remembered that but what was encouraging to me about it was he was telling me about the text we covered and i have always prided myself on the most important thing i can do is help you understand this somebody comes up and says oh we like the way you teach or somebody comes up and says oh we like the joke you told or we you know okay that's flattering it doesn't move me What moves me is when somebody comes up and says, I learned this from you. And they can cite the passage or they can talk about the scriptures. And another mom come up to me one time and mentioned that her daughter was studying on the floor and had some Bibles out on the floor. And she asked her, what are you doing? She's like, I'm studying. And she had different versions of the Bible out. And when the mom asked her, why are you doing that? She's like, well, that "Cause that, because Pastor Mike does that." That's an encouragement when you find out how others are doing. Think about that in your own lives. Have there ever been those that you've counseled or you've helped with something, or maybe you've walked them through something, and it impacts them? You learn about it a little bit later what an encouragement that is. It kind of tells you your ministry is worth it, right? And so Paul, as he's looking back on this. I believe that he was encouraged by the good news that the Lord had brought him. And I think the Lord does that oftentimes for us. Just as a way to encourage us. Let's look at the fourth way that the Lord encouraged Paul. I believe he encouraged him with his sovereignty. We're going back to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. I'll read this in a bit. but Can you imagine how discouraging it must have been for Paul to see the majority of his fellow Jews constantly reject the gospel city after city it was always the Gentiles some Jews came to Christ obviously the Bereans were a a great example of that but most of the time it was kind of like handful of Jews and a bunch of Greeks and Paul was a Jew you know his heart was for the Jews if you remember what he talks about in the book of Romans where he said basically his heart longed for the Jews imagine how discouraging it must have been in fact, in Romans chapter nine, Paul said this: "For I wish, for I could wish, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my countrymen, my Jews, my kinsmen, according to the flesh." I imagine it was something he struggled with. It's probably discouraging. <laughs> to make things even more discouraging, they didn't just reject him, but they threatened him, persecuted him, beat him, jailed him, and run him out of the synagogues in city after city after city. I wonder how I would do with something like that. We see a similar response here in Corinth. Um, must have been pretty discouraging at times to fall, walk away from his fellow Jews. Look at um, verse six of chapter eighteen. But when they, the Jews, resisted and blasphemed, and shook out his or he shook out his garments, and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean, for now I will go to the Gentiles. I don't imagine that was easy for Paul. Because he knew the consequences. I've shared this before as well when I hear Christians, um, talk about the rapture and wanting to be taken away. I think, it's, yeah, we'd all love that. But oftentimes, in the context of things are really getting bad here, and sometimes it's even, you know, in reference to, um, all the wickedness we see and everything else. And so there's almost this, you know, well, Jesus needs to take us out of here, you know. And my concern with that is what happens when he does that. It is wrath and judgment. And so on the one hand, while we are anxiously waiting for Christ to return and to take us, the thing we have to balance that with is what the world will ultimately face and the wrath of God and the eternity that they will face as a result. I want to say this bluntly, I don't know that we ought to be rejoicing in that fact. If anything, our heart, if we were standing here today and we saw Christ return in the sky, it ought to be a mix of rejoicing and excitement to see Him, but concern over those who don't know Him. And I imagine as Paul looked at these Jews right here as they were rejecting Him once again, and he has to look at them and say, your blood be on your own head. I imagine that is something that crushed him in his spirit as he did it. Now he might have left Corinth discouraged. Has it not been for what God actually did next? And this is where I believe God encouraged him with his sovereignty. Look at verses 7 and 8. He left the synagogue there. He's essentially forced out of it. Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus a worshiper of God, and get this, whose house was right next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So first, when Paul was forced out of the synagogue, God immediately provides him with another location, another place, his provision there for him to teach. And it just so happens to be right next door to the synagogue, which means any of the Jews Coming to the synagogue, now I have to walk by this place. Interesting that the Lord set up shop right there, right next door. In other words, He didn't take Paul's influence away from the Jews. We are told here that Titius Justus was a worshiper of God, which meant that he was a God fearing Gentile. It's used about Lydia. We saw that in Acts chapter 16 the language that Paul uses that he departed from there and went to the house means that he literally set up his teaching shop there if you will he took up residence there at the house maybe not to live he was probably still living with Priscilla and Achilla but he made that his primary venue for teaching right there at the house of this man that the Lord provided now Luke doesn't tell us whether Tideus was a Christian at a minimum he was open to Paul teaching and using his house this would have been very strategic again because of the Jews having to walk literally Right past it. So that's the first interesting coincidence, if you will. We'll call it God's providence. It really is. But then the Lord does something even more ironic. Notice it says here that he actually saves the synagogue leader in all of his house. So the Jews kick him out. He takes up residence next door. I would imagine, and this is purely speculation on my part, but I would imagine that the synagogue leader here has to walk past... Tidious Justice's house every day as he strolls to work at the synagogue. And maybe one day Paul is kind of sitting out there and maybe he was tweaked a little bit. And so Paul is able to have conversation with him and ultimately it says he and his whole entire household get saved. That's a bit ironic. They kick him out of the synagogue and now the synagogue leader gets saved and his whole entire family. Now, in an even additional ironic twist it says that not only Crispus got saved but quite a few of the Gentile Christians actually or Gentile Corinthians now actually hear about all of this and it says that they were believing and baptized as well it's very similar to what happened in other cities but God takes this terrible situation where Paul is preaching to those who desperately should have accepted their Messiah they reject him once again Paul is forced out. God says, I'll provide you with a place right next door. And oh, by the way, we're going to save Crispus, the leader of that synagogue, and his whole entire family. And oh, by the way, on top of that, word is going to get out, and many Gentile people in the city are going to get saved as well. So Paul has tremendous success in the city, all because of God's sovereignty. There is nothing in this passage that suggests that it's anything Paul himself specifically just conjured up, but rather God worked out the details what an encouragement that must have been for Paul! It's hard to imagine that it didn't encourage him. Anytime God exercises His sovereign control over things and shows that to us, it becomes an encouragement. I think about even this place we're meeting in here today. You know, so we're meeting in the government building. It worked out very well for us, but every morning we had to set up, and every morning we have to tear or every you know afternoon tear down or whatever. And we're done. You know, and because of COVID, everything gets shut down. You know, and ultimately we end up here. It's worked out great for us. You know, God's provision. What an encouragement that is. And it was here for Paul as well in the city, especially after having left Athens, which, again, wasn't a stellar reaction to the gospel. And here, going to a city that is much more corrupt, if you will, and the response is much more significant because of God's sovereignty. One last thing I want to focus on. The last way I believe that the Lord encouraged him here was through his divine protection. The Lord encouraged Paul with his divine protection. If you look at verses 9 and 17, we'll read through those in a bit here. But over the last few chapters, we've seen this pattern develop of Paul's ministry. Um, he would enter a city, begin preaching the gospel at the synagogue. Sometimes only a few would respond to the gospel, while at other times more numbers would. But for the most part, no sooner than he started seeing an impact... The Jews would become jealous, opposition would start, persecution would start, and they would try to run them out of the synagogue and ultimately run them out of the city. That's the pattern that Paul faced. It happened at Iconium, Antioch, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and even to some degree at Athens. That was the pattern. Paul knew that going into every city. If he didn't, then he wasn't as bright as we think. We know he probably figured out the pattern. Lord, I'm going into the city. I know this is the way it's going to play out. Paul even says elsewhere, I know what to expect. When he's going to Jerusalem, he says, I know what to expect. He figured it out. And so that was the pattern. The same thing would happen here at Corinth, based on just the pattern. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 18. And the Lord said to Paul, now, why would he say this? The Lord said to Paul, in a night, or in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. Now the, the reason the New American Standard translates this is do not be afraid any longer and the any longer is in italics is because the word and the, and the um, grammar the syntax that's used for that suggests that Paul might have been afraid. Makes sense. If you went into every city and had the pattern that Paul did You got into the next city, wouldn't you sort of have some apprehension, a little bit of fear? Thinking, it's going to happen again. I'm not sure I want to be beat outside the city and dragged out and left for dead again. I don't think I want to take the beatings again. I don't want to be locked in stocks in a prison again. So Paul here was likely a little afraid. Maybe a little discouraged. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We've seen this before but I think it's good for repeating. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so and far more labors and far more imprisonments beaten times without number. Can you imagine that beaten so many times you've already forgotten count, lost count. Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, meaning in the water. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, and dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I think he's in some dangerous spots there, right? Right. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and in thirst often without food and cold and exposure apart from such external things like that's not enough there's the daily pressures of me of concern for all the churches who is weak without my being weak who is led into sin without my intense concern. That was Paul's life. But what does Paul do here at Corinth? He makes him a promise. Now that's not a promise that applies to the rest of Paul's life. But it's for this moment, it's for this time while he's in Corinth. Maybe this was a time where he was struggling specifically more with some discouragement or fear than he was at others. We go through periods like that, don't we? Where sometimes our faith is strong and there's sometimes where it's a little weaker. Maybe that's one of these times for Paul. And so he makes him a promise about this specific time and place and he does three things. One, he said, I'll be with you. The second thing he says is no one's going to harm you, physically harm you. And then he says, I've got some peeps in the city. Not those little marshmallow things, but some people in the city. There's no doubt Paul was encouraged. If you look at verse 11, we're told about this. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul normally didn't stay in a city that long. He stayed in Ephesus for almost three years, but that was rare. He normally wasn't in a city very long, a few months. But here, after the Lord told him, don't worry about it. Paul decides to stick around for a year and a half. He was encouraged by what the Lord did. He trusted the Lord in this. It wasn't long before the opposition started. We're going to see God fulfill this promise to him. Look at verses 12 through, 14, or 12 through 18. But while Galio was pronskull, this is kind of like a governor of Achaia, The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul, there's the pattern, and brought him before the judgment seat. Now, brought him before is probably not an invitation. We've seen the pattern in the past. They drag these people, pull them out of their homes. Sometimes they beat them or bruise them. It's not all said that here, but you know this probably wasn't just, come along, Paul. We invite you. Here's your summons. Show up on the date. No. They brought him before the judgment seat saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law, but when Paul was brought, or when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong, or a vicious crime, uh, O oh Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names about your own law, look after it yourselves, I am unwilling to judge of these matters." And he drove them away from the judgment seat and they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So what we find here is before Paul can even open his mouth, the Lord steps in, does exactly what he promised Paul he would do. They may have dragged him in front of there, but they didn't beat him, they didn't bruise him, they didn't whip him. So he remained unharmed, exactly as the Lord said. Now, The Sosthenes was probably one of their own. He was a fellow Jew. Later on in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 1, it sounds like he probably got saved ultimately. But at this point, he was probably just another Jew that they weren't happy with. He was part of the synagogue. The Jews probably weren't happy that he had let Paul do what Paul did, so they decided to beat him instead. But Paul, we're told even after this, that he then decided to remain many days longer. Talk about building his confidence. Seeing the Lord protect him led to him even sticking around longer in the city. And again, it's a hostile city at this point. Now you may wonder, this is a side note, you may wonder why Paul protected or the Lord protected Paul at this time and not others. I have no idea. Paul probably would say, I don't know. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm well content with weakness, with insult, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak then I am strong. I think that would be Paul's response. I can't tell you why he didn't protect Paul in every city. All I know is that every time Paul suffered, the Lord used it to promote the gospel. And Paul was content with that. But in this particular instance, when Paul needed it most, the Lord intervened. I believe he did it to encourage Paul. Let's just wrap this up. So we've seen these different ways that the Lord encouraged Paul. I think as we think about that, we can see maybe the way the Lord did it for us. I think about, can you remember a time when the Lord brought new friends or other Christians into your lives that served as a way of encouraging you? Can you think about a time when the Lord provided exactly what you needed at the moment you needed it? And did that encourage you? Was there a time when you were worried or concerned and the Lord brought you some good news and it encouraged your heart? Have you ever seen him do something in your life that you knew was clearly his sovereign hand and it couldn't be explained any other way and it encouraged you? Maybe there's times where you know he's protected you. All of these things, I believe, are God's way of encouraging us. Are they not?